Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. You're on for a treat today as today's guest, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, is known as the father of functional medicine. Yep, functional medicine, guys, the practice we talk so much about here with doctors like Mark Hyman, Frank Lippman, Bob Roundtree, among so many others. They all practice functional medicine, and it all came from Jeff. Today, we're going to talk about the founding of functional medicine, the future of health, including what Jeff calls the omics revolution, where we'll cover everything from DNA, longevity, immunity, hey, and even beer, and his new favorite gluten, which is truly cutting edge. Jeff, it is an honor to have you here. Well, Jason, I can tell you it's an honor for me to be here. You know, I, I'd like to interview you because I think what you've done here is nothing short of just remarkable. So thanks. Well, thank you so much. You are very kind. But seriously, you are. I, I've heard about you for, God, I think 10 years since I've known Frank Lippman, the father of functional medicine. <laughs> it, it all started with you. And, and can you walk us through the founding of the Institute for Functional Medicine and your personal journey up into the founding. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I'll try to make it concise because it wasn't a linear path. It was kind of a, a little bit of a random walk. But, uh, you know, now my uh, my family's calling me the grandfather of functional medicine. You know, they're, they're reminding me that I've got these teenage grandchildren. So it's, uh, it's, it's I've, I'm taking that with a sense of hubris, uh, I guess. Um, so the way it started for me is uh, in, in uh, I went on to medical school and I was uh, a fairly young student. I got out of college very young. Uh, and... I was probably uh, a little bit overly zealous about what I wanted to know and uh, how I wanted to be taught. And uh, I wasn't a really good listener back then, probably. And I was always asking my professors in medical school why people got ill and you know what were the cause and not just uh, what we called it and how we defined its diagnosis. That ultimately led me into one of my advisors saying, you know, Jeff, uh, those kind of questions you're asking are things that PhD students ask. And so, you know, you can spend uh, maybe a a couple of years uh, in a PhD program in the medical school uh, kind of asking those questions. So I I transferred over uh, in my clinical years into a PhD program. And that turned out to be a really great place for me because it allowed uh, kind of free access to asking questions all the time. And uh, that led into an academic appointment eventually as a, as a uh, biochemist. Um, and from that, then, my first uh, graduate student uh, was a guy who has gone on to actually be very successful um, at, uh, at John Hopkins uh, in the Department of Internal Medicine. But at the time, he was uh, wanting to do work on vitamin E. And this is in 1971. And uh, I knew nothing about vitamin E, but he was a very convincing student, and he seemed very ambitious. So we started this vitamin E research, uh, which we were very fortunate to pick a good subject and topic, and we got some really early good results that helped us to understand the mechanism of action of vitamin E, which had never been known before, and that became very uh, kind of um, known to a variety of groups through the publications, and that got me invited uh, to, to speak to medical meetings. And then I ended up uh, on the cover of the most uh, popular medical magazine in the world, uh, 
because I was in the supermarket one Saturday morning and with my young sons at that time and uh, was going through the checkout counter and looked over at the uh, at the most uh, popular medical magazine called National Enquirer. <laughs> and and, and there, there I was on the cover with the uh, thing saying, Professor Finds Secret to Aging. And I looked at it, and and lo and behold, the professor was me, and I didn't even know I was on the magazine. So that 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 created a, a quite a flurry. This was 1973. That created quite a flurry of response to the university. That uh, people were calling from all over the country to find out this the questions, which uh, took me totally by surprise. That kind of changed my career, the tra trajectory of my career. Uh, I then got involved with doing a variety of research projects and get funded uh, to do a, a whole variety of studies that were related to nutrition and its impact on different functions of health, which then ultimately led me uh, to meet Dr. Linus Pauling, two-time Nobel Prize winning laureate. Wow. And uh, uh, he took me under his wings like he had so many other uh, people over the years. And uh, that then led to a sabbatical two years uh, at his institute in, in Palo Alto at Stanford. Um, and he and his wife, uh, were very, very influential in my uh, kind of um, education and, and, and maturation as a professional. And uh, I was a tenured, uh, by that time, a tenured staff member at the university. And uh, after my two years of sabbatical, I made what I look back now as being a pretty silly decision. Uh, but it turned out in my life stream, it was not silly. And that is, uh, putting my family in the car and driving back to Washington State from California, uh, going back to my tenured faculty position, I made the decision that, uh, you know, maybe I needed to give up my tenure and do something else uh, with my professional life and uh, focus on teaching doctors how to do preventive medicine in their practice. So I started a company called HealthCom in 1983, uh, gave up uh, my tenured uh, secure position, had no business plan, had no, uh, I did have a family, had a mortgage, had cars, had animals, and uh, <laughs> suddenly had to figure out how I was actually going to make this um, some kind of a, uh, a supportive way to, to move my professional life forward. I was very fortunate at that time then to meet some of the early uh, developers of the natural foods industry, uh, John Mackey, uh, Stan Amy, uh, Anthony Harnett, uh, Doug Green. Uh, these are people that really, uh, Sandy Gooch, that started the original natural food stores, uh, breaking away from kind of the health food store concept to a, a bigger idea as to how to take their post-hippieism and create new uh, uh, green economy. And uh, I became kind of their science advisor uh, in the early days. This is uh, when... Whole Foods just had the one store in uh, in Austin, and uh, it was a really great uh, incubator for me. Uh, and these were great people, great ideas. The natural foods industry was just starting, um, and that then allowed me to kind of uh, grow my my uh, my concept up, uh, so that uh, by nineteen uh, uh, late '80s, uh, my wife and I had developed a pretty robust uh, relationship, not only with the natural foods industry, but with uh, with doctors who were starting to be interested in nutrition. So I had a very robust seminar program. I had a publications company. I, I We were really into I had a magazine called Complementary Medicine Magazine. This would be the middle to late 80s. And my wife then one day said, Jeff, you know, you've been traveling 300,000 miles a year going around the world doing your educational thing. 
uh, and you've met all these interesting people you keep talking about, uh, why don't we sponsor a meeting uh, where you could bring maybe 40 or 50 of the people that you think are really the, the opinion leaders that are creating this new concept of health and do a whiteboard session and just ask the question, what would be idealized healthcare? And uh, so we did that in 1989 uh, in Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. Uh, it was a remarkable group of people who now have grown up to be many of the leaders in our field, uh, Dr. Sidney Baker, Dr. Leo Gallen. I mean, I could go down the list. It was a, it was a who's who. These were all young men at that time. And um, we then did this uh, three-day retreat. Uh, we came up with some ideas we thought were really interesting. Everyone went back to their place. Uh, and then I, uh, Susan, my wife, said, you know, that was so successful and everyone was so buoyed. Why don't we do another one and see what would come out of it? So we did another one in 1990. Um, and it was at that second uh, meeting then uh, that uh, in the evening between uh, Saturday and Sunday of our last day of that second year, I had this, uh, this kind of dream, basically, that we should be calling this functional medicine. Uh, and so I came back the next morning uh, with the group and I said, um, you know, I've come up with this concept after these two years of this discussion that we, maybe we ought to be calling this functional medicine. And everyone said, well, you know, that's interesting, but no, I don't think that's a good term because in medicine, functional medicine is either psychosomatic medicine, it's all in your mind, or it's rehabilitative geriatric medicine. And both of those are not really kind of like going to be lightning rods for creation of a new idea. And I said, you know, well, that is true. But if we look at the medical literature, the medical literature now is talking about functional cardiology, functional radiology, functional endocrinology. So I think it's getting a different new definition of what functional is about. And maybe we can escape to where the puck is going and not to where it's been. So maybe because we sponsored the meeting, I won the day and we, uh, we called it functional medicine and we uh, and then founded the Institute for Functional Medicine in 1991. And I'm very proud to say that over the years since now, it's grown to have 200,000 health practitioners go through its courses and programs. And we have a medical textbook. We have ACCME accreditation for category one education. And it's, it's kind of got a stickiness to it. So that's how it all came. Huge to stickiness. Yeah. Huge yeah. stickiness. So, 1991 compared to 2020 today where was western medicine then and where's compared to western medicine today yeah, are the yeah. gaps what were the gaps then versus today yes i think that um it's a good news bad news story in response to your question uh, based on my perception um the the bad news i'll start with that is that uh, the dilemmas and the challenges that we had back in the late 80s and early 90s are similar to what we have today, and that is there are still those people holding on to the primacy of disease as being the solution to all of our health problems. And so the concept of health is defined as the absence of disease. And we recognize that that is really not an operative model if you talk to real people about what they're experiencing in life. You cannot be well, but not be diseased. And the concept of waiting till you're diseased is too late. And in fact, uh, as we start looking at what goes on in our medical culture with the dominant diseases of which let's put diabetes as, as a central concern that we're seeing a rising in epidemic proportion, uh, it's, it's thought that, well, um, diabetes is just a, a disease in search of a new drug. Right. And yet we know that, that that really is not true. Um, in fact, uh, just as early as this, as recently as this morning, I was having a discussion with uh, an expert who 
<coughs> was the, um, the vice president of Jocelyn Diabetes Clinic that's associated with Harvard Medical School. And he, he was uh, saying to me, and he's a diabetes expert, he was saying, you know, it's interesting in the years that he, as an endocrinologist, has been involved with diabetes re uh, treatment, that uh, when he started off, there were three drugs uh, that were approved to treat diabetes. That was um, insulin, uh, sulfonylureas, and metformin. And uh, now there are 14 drugs approved for the treatment of diabetes, and we haven't moved the needle at all. The condition is growing in prevalence. It's not, we're not winning the battle of diabetes. And the reason for it is that we're still thinking that diabetes is a disease that requires a new pill, hmm. recognizing that diabetes is really a manifestation of our genes interacting with our lifestyle and environment in such a way to produce an outcome called insulin resistance that causes diabetes. And if we don't treat the cause and we only treat the effect, we're chasing the elusive tale of, uh, of failure. And that's what's going on in medicine in general. We could use Alzheimer's disease as another example with Dale Bredesen and one of my colleagues that you know very well who's saying that you're never going to find the pill for Alzheimer's because Alzheimer's is not one disease. It's multimodal mm -hmm. that's caused by, again, people's lifestyle and environment interfacing with their genes to create an outcome that we call dementia. So with that as a as a, uh, as a, uh, a theme that we haven't fully wrestled to the ground, then I can talk about the good news. The good news is that over this course of the last uh, 30-some years has developed another medical paradigm called systems biology. It was not really present at all as a concept when I was in, in medical school or even in doing my PhD work. Uh, and systems biology, uh, to use a parlance, would be a holistic concept versus looking at diseases as uh, kind of uniquely defined, well-conscribed things that everyone understood. You could taste it, see it, and feel it. Now we recognize that uh, the disease is really a diffuse manifestation of altered function of the individual, which multiple things can be going on within their uh, their bodies that create an outcome called that which we term a disease. And therefore, if you really want to understand how to manage health, you need to move upstream away from the disease to where the origin of these things occurred, how the system becomes disturbed. This is called systems biology as applied to healthcare. And that is actually gaining incredible traction now as a new paradigm shifting the fundamental understanding of why we get ill and where what to do to treat it at its cause, not at its effect. Because the medicine we have today is treating effects. It's not treating causes. And so this new paradigm really is rapidly advancing to handle the 75% of the patients uh, that are expending resources in our disease care system for which the treatment they're getting are not really successful. So when you say systems biology, I tend to think lab work, testing, all good things, all data-driven, and, and, and we'll talk about that, but do you, do you still think that the lifestyle piece it, when we talk about root cause, is still missing lifestyle in terms of nutrition, stress, sleep, environment, all those things. Do you, you think Western's caught up a little bit or, or no? Mind Body Green is the example of what's happening. Right? I, I wish I had an MD, though. No, you don't. You, know? <laughs> you don't wish you had an MD. I can tell you because an MD would constrain you to a myopic view of where all of this has come from. You have an expansive opportunity to create the new paradigm, which is what you're doing. And I think that uh, this is not all about lab testing. 
Lab testing is, is a manifestation of one kind of piece part of the bigger puzzle. The real puzzle is understanding how people interface with their chosen lifestyles and how they interfa interface with their environments and how those things serve as signals that our body has receptors as antennae to pick up those signals and create the outcome that's called our phenotype, which is how we look, act, and feel. This is a major paradigm-shifting concept that you, by the way, with Mind Body Green, are making consumer-friendly. So it's an extraordinary opportunity to actually transform people's lives about where it really matters. And, you know, medicine uh, is, a, is an artifact of a specific learning system, right? What has been here before modern medicine were cultural understandings of the interface of people to their lifestyles that came through empirical learning through thousands of years of experience. And those kinds of teachings tell us something about how we uh, have resilience or lack of resilience in, uh, in a changing environment. And really, if you think about stress, the term stress is really an agnostic term. It, uh, stress is not bad. <laughs> stress can be sure. good. What happens is if our body has lost its resilience to a change in the environment, now stress becomes dysfunctional and we, we feel stressed out. But in the absence of stress, we don't get up in the morning and we don't really have any motivation to do anything. So it's how do we develop the accommodation to manage the change in our environment that is really the new health paradigm. And Mind Body Green is part of how you find solutions to those issues. Thank you. Well, we're trying. We're trying. So... If I'm listening and say Omaha, Nebraska, and there are no great, or wherever it may be, and there, I don't have access to a great functional medicine practitioner, and I'm excited about this concept of systems biology, or what you've also referred to as the, the omics revolution. If I'm listening, what can I what can I do with that? Where do yep. I go next? Well, you know, for, I think first of all, it's it's clearly obvious, just probably in the way that I'm talking, that I'm a biohacker, right? I'm 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 kind of on the edge of uh, probably the continuum of uh, of health interests because I'm a guy that likes to measure everything and analyze everything. And As I, do I. Yeah. So <laughs> so I would put myself in a rarefied um, kind of class of individuals. But what can I um, what what does my experience, or say your experience, then lead to other individuals who are maybe aren't quite as inclined to biohacking? Uh, I think we're the early adopters of the new understanding of what really makes a difference. So not everything we measure is really uh, a major uh, kind of needle mover, but mm -hmm. we don't know what the major needle movers are until we have these kind of early prospectors, or I'll call them bioneers, that are out there kind of really understanding the body at a different level. So my thought is that uh, as this becomes more well understood, which it is right now, we're, we're exponentially increasing our understanding, we will find those that are the most important things that people who are not necessarily wanting to measure every principle in their body. They just sure. want to know, what can I do to, to move the needle for myself? How can I personalize my health in a way that really is is uh, meaningful? I think we're seeing those tools uh, become available. And by the way, I think that they're all rooted in function. Uh, one of the things that I've come to understand, and, and this is my uh, stalking horse, uh, is that if you speak about disease, the reason that disease has a primacy position in our culture is, um, and why it gets reimbursed and, and it's pedigreed and people are inclined to take their academic credentials into disease, is it is easily quantified. You have a covenant, a group of explanations that people will agree upon as to what a disease looks like, how you assess it, and everyone then can shake their head and saying, oh yeah, yeah, we have the rules of the road for disease. Right. Now let's go to health. If I ask you, what are the rules of the road for health for the individual? 
My experience, having now seen thousands and thousands of people in our research and clinics over the years, is that health is much more squishy, that it's very individualized. It's, it's not nearly as quantified. So if we wanted to really make health as professionally uh, secure as disease, what would we do? We'd find a, a way of quantifying health like we quantify disease. And the only way I believe we can quantify health is on function, because that's the only thing you can measure. And when you ask a person, really, what does health mean to them? You personalize it. What they will tell you in response is they will not say, health for me is the absence of disease. They will say something like, health for me is doing the following or mm -hmm. being able to have the... And those doings are function. And the function really is uh, found in, in four quadrants. And those quadrants are physical function, metabolic function, cognitive function, and behavioral function. Each one of those we can quantify. There are measurements and tools, not necessarily lab tests, that you can use some of these are pen and paper methods of just assessing that the aggregate of those four functional characteristics gives rise to what a person calls their health, and it's personalized to their need. This is the new paradigm, is finding ways to make that accessible to people so they can both define their objectives based upon their functional aspirations, and you can give them personalized approaches to achieve their objectives. Now we have a quantified health system that is separate and equal to that of the disease care system. That's my advocacy. I'm sold. Does this exist yet? Or are we there or do you have to go to this doctor here, that lab there, this DNA test? Do you have to sort of create it yourself or I think we're in the front edge of making this more consumer friendly. And one of the things that I use as an indicator of this is, quite honestly, the uh, the revolutionary exponential growth in the number of podcasts in, in health, right? <laughs> there are too many podcasts. Well, yeah, there are probably too many, but, but this is a sorting system, isn't it? This is kind of a Darwinian natural selection to create the new environment of healthcare. Because you've got all these voices, all these opinions, all these perspectives out there. They're going to sift and sort themselves. Uh, Mind Body Green is going to survive. Many will come and go. And, and, You're right about that. And, and, <laughs> and what ultimately will happen is that you will get a centric position that makes this accessible to everyone. And that's what we're in right. This is, this is a time of unbelievable vitality in changing the old paradigm into this new model of the 21st century. So you don't think, I, I just want to stay on the labs for a second. Uh, you don't think there are no silver bullet markers. So I, I've, look, I'm the guy, I, I go to Frank Lipman. I love Frank, our mutual friend. I get blood testing every quarter. I, heart disease runs in my family, so I pay attention to certain markers and so forth. We tweak with supplements, diet, all that. And I, I love, you know, it, it's important. And for, for me to do that um, is really powerful if I can, tweak one thing that has a dramatic effect on my health and longevity, I'm going to do it. And so I'm always curious about certain markers, whether it's heart disease, cancer, you mentioned diabetes and so forth. So I'm just curious. So I'll take a step back. So I think traditionally you walk into a Western medicine doctor and debatable, you know, how meaningful these things are. People have different opinions, but you know, you get your blood pressure, you do your cholesterol, and you know, those those are still important, but they're more important. If we're talking about heart disease specifically, lipid profile, LDL size, you know, talk about particle size, LPA, ApoB, those are sort of the, the more if you're going to a real cardiologist, not a real cardiologist, but someone who's really focused and knowledgeable, they're going to 
mm-hmm. go a bit deeper. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, and I, I understand we're completely individualized, and that's where the world is going. Are there certain yeah I, where I'm going is someone someone listening a cu- couple things they should probably potentially get tested for that their their doctor is probably not doing in their yeah. regular yeah. checkup. So um, let's first talk about the annual physical for a second before I get into answering your question. So the annual physical has been kind of the primacy of, you know, if you get your annual physical, that's going to really help you to design your trajectory towards health. So uh, does the research uh, now uh, of the outcome from annual physicals really justify the expense of your time and energy? And, the, and there are many publications on this over the last few years, and the answer is no. The way we're doing the annual physical right now, it will find a disease, but it, it doesn't really chart your trajectory towards where you're going to be 10 years from now very well. So then you say, well, what would chart it? And that's the question you're asking me. And there are certain uh, variables that I think are important uh, markers. And, and I think you mentioned um, a few of them. Blood pressure to me is really important, but I think it should be ambulatory blood pressure, not just single white coat blood pressure when you go in and get a single measurement and you're anxious in the morning and it doesn't really indicate the, the, the periodicity of blood pressure changes throughout the day. So people are now starting to do continuous blood pressure measurements. And in fact, now the new wearables you probably see that mm-hmm. are going to be coming out will be able to track blood pressure non-invasively on a 24-hour basis. That's going to be extraordinarily interesting to, to test your real world response to how you're living as it relates to your vasculature, your your control of blood pressure. So that's one. Uh, second is, um, is blood sugar, glucose. Um, and again, you go in, you have your physical, they take a f- blood sample, and you get that number back. But what did it really tell you? You know, when did you last eat? What did you eat? Did you exercise? Were you under stress? What does one blood uh, sample tell you? It might tell you if you have diabetes, but it's not going to tell you how you're managing your control of blood sugar throughout the day. So now we have continuous blood sugar monitoring, CGM. And now we have devices that people are wearing for the first time. Uh, I've been wearing one for the last several years and and tracking my own continuous blood sugar measurements. And it's it's fascinating to, to... to use that as a learning tool to see, oh, gee whiz, you know, when I had a very stressful day, my blood sugar was running higher than when I had a relaxed day. <laughs> go and figure. I, I didn't even change my diet, right? So how does my blood sugar go up when I didn't eat a candy bar and I'm under stress? So it, this kind of question of continuous measurements versus one point in time measurements becomes very important, not only for blood pressure, but also for glucose. Then you talked about lipids. Um, so you take, um, that's fat. So you take a cholesterol level, as you said, does that really give you a a determinant. Well, if it's very elevated, yeah, it probably is a cardiovascular risk factor. But if it's in the kind of moderate moderate range, let's say it's between 170 and 220 uh, milligram per deciliter, you would say, well, what does that really tell me about my individual risk? So then you said, well, maybe you need more uh, profound lipid testing to see how the fats were packaged in your blood. Because some of those packages, those lipid particles, are much more atherogenic or atherosclerosis prone than others. So you start asking deeper questions about the trajectory of how you're traveling because you want to know where you're going to be 10 years or 20 years from now, not just where you're going to be in a month. So all of those things are part of this changing technology. And then you say, well, 
is that going to be really expensive? And my answer is no. We're going to be able to be measuring within the next couple of years all these variables non-invasively in a continuous way with wearables that will cost less than $100. And we'll go to the cloud and uh, the intelligent new physician of our era will be that as our counselor to help guide us as to how we're going to manage our lifestyle and environment to, me to meet our genetic need to do what is really in our genes. Long century of good living. That's the key. So you mentioned stress. What role does stress play in this? And then with some people, so for example, I, I, I love knowing all this. I get my labs every quarter. I did 23andMe, everything. My wife and co-founder, Colleen, does, is like, I don't, I, I don't want to do 23andMe. Yeah. And she's not alone. There are a lot of people. So, you know, I, I feel good. I'm fine. I don't, I don't me, I, I, she knows personally that if there was something in there that she didn't... Uh, wasn't to her liking. She would get stressed out about it and probably, in her opinion, do more uh, harm than help. So what's your opinion, one, on stress, and then two, the, the possible stress of what do you do with all that yeah. information? So let me start, if I can, with this question of the genes, because I think this is a, a really huge area of misunderstanding right now as we're getting into the omics era of the 21st century. Um, this construct that uh, disease is locked in our genes and we, we may not want to know about it because we can't do anything about it is a fallacious concept. <laughs> and in fact, it's an artifact of an old model called Mendelian genetics that now we recognize is, uh, is only partially true. This concept that you get dominant and recessive genes and you can predict certain characteristics like colors of eyes or hairs based upon your genetic pattern. And so there's nothing you can do about it. It's deterministic. Uh, so our whole health trajectory is deterministic based on our parents. Let me just tell you that model is bunk. <laughs> uh, it, it is now it's uh, in the uh, waste paper basket of past history because now we recognize <sighs> that there is absolutely no such thing as a gene for disease. I'm going to make a very, very strong statement here. Now you're going to say, no, hold it just a minute. What about the inborn errors of metabolism, Tay-Sachs, Wilson's, Gauchers, Fabre, sickle cell anemia, hemophilia, hemophilia. Uh, those are genetic diseases, monogenetic genetic diseases. Well, now we recognize, actually, if you study those diseases more extensively, you'll find they exist in all sorts of different variations of themes. Every one of those genetic diseases can be very severe, like Down syndrome, or it can be very mild. They penetrate into the phenotype, into our behavior, into our, the way we act and feel in very different ways with the same genes. Now, what's the variable? The variable is the environment in which the genes are being expressed, starting at the moment of fertilization of the egg maybe even pre-conceptually. And so what I'm saying is there's a lot more variability of control than people understand. So now for your wife, who doesn't want to have her genes measured because she doesn't want a bad news, we don't get bad news. We get the most magic news that we ever can get by our genetic assessment of the, the, the unique facet on the diamond of life that we each have, of which there has never been someone identical to us, nor will there ever be someone identical in the future. It is our unique signature. It's the legacy of our most unique and important uh, attribute. And if we know our genes, we know not how we're going to die. We know how we're going to live. Mm -hmm. That is the turning around of the 21st century of omics. So now we start to say, well, what about something like uh, these breast cancer genes? Yep. I mean, those are pretty serious, right? The BRCA1 and 2. So the woman who, who discovered the BRCA1 and 2 genes uh, was a, at the time a postdoc at University of California, Berkeley. 
she uh, she made an, an interesting observation, and she actually published uh, an article in um, in a respectable magazine, Science, uh, in the uh, early 2000s on this topic, saying that if you really looked at BRCA1 and 2 penetration into the appearance of breast cancer or ovarian cancer in women, what you would find is that women that were born uh, with that genetic characteristic in their genes prior to 1940, the probability they would get in their lifetime breast and ovarian cancer was less than 40%, something like 35%. 24%. 24%, yes. thank you. I, I have to go by the notes. He has no notes. <laughs> Whatever you're having for breakfast, I want. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, so that, that was women that were born before 1940. Now, what about women born with that same genetic architecture, the same BRCA1 and 2 mutations that were born more recently? Now the penetrance into the phenotype of breast and ovarian cancer is over 80%. 85%. 24% yeah. to 85%. That's right. Insane. And it's the same genes. So what does that say? I think it says a tremendous amount about our fear about genes. I would prefer to know if I had an APOE gene, which we associate with Alzheimer's and atherosclerosis, than not know. Because if I know I have an APOE4, then I can do something about it because I know what modulates the, the production of APOE4 into Alzheimer's, high fat, saturated fat diets. There are certain things that I would do intentionally to modulate my particular outcome. Do you realize that APOE4 is actually not a danger gene? It's not an Alzheimer's disease. It was the most important APOE genotype in our early history as humanoids because it's an inflammatory gene. It gives us a hyper response to inflammation. And what was our greatest threat before antibiotics and things that we, we have today? It was uh, injury that could cause an inflammation or infection and cause us to die from it. Mm -hmm. So if we had a very strong inflammatory response, that was a, an advantageous gene for us. But over time now, what was an advantage at one time can now become a disadvantage because what? We're eating an inflammatory diet. We're living an inflammatory lifestyle. So our genetic characteristic that at one time was beneficial now becomes not beneficial. So what do we do? We change our lifestyle. We don't change our genes. Let me give you another example. The Pima Indians in Arizona. What do we know about them? Uh, on the reservation, if you go and study them, that's where a lot of diabetologists do their research because over 80% of the population um, beyond 45 years of age have diabetes. And they have um, loss of eyesight. They have neurological problems. They have kidney problems. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible situation. So people have said, oh, the poor Pimas, they have this diabetic gene genes. They have genes for diabetes. No, they don't. And they have warrior genes. And in fact, if we look at the Pimas, the first example of diabetes in the Pima uh, population uh, that I could find in the medical records was uh, by the public health service physician, John uh, Service, who uh, identified it in the 1930s. There was no diabetes in the Pimas until the 1930s. Now it's, it's rampant. Now why is that? It's not because their genes are diabetic. It's because their lifestyle is fed white junk white flour, white sugar, white alcohol, and they have now got a disadvantage because their genes are what? They're thrifty genes because the biggest threats that they had to survival over history was starvation. They're nomadic people that live in a very hostile environment of the Southwest of the United States, and therefore starvation, how do you then select a gene for starvation? You do so by holding on to calories assiduously. So what happens if you feed a calorie-rich, uh, nutrient, uh, high-calorie, low-nutrient diet to a person who has thrifty genes? What happens? They hold on to those calories, and what do you see? Obesity. 
much faster than other people, and you see insulin resistance, and you see diabetes. Therefore, what was an advantageous genetic characteristic in most of their history now becomes a disadvantageous because we have poisoned them with what their genes don't accept. That is why we have this form of discrimination around genetics. We are actually stigmatizing people with the undue belief, the un, really unresolved belief, that somehow their genes are going to cause them to be diseased. We have made them, uh, we've, we've, we basically discriminated against their genes and called them damaged, injured, when they're really just unique. And we just need to manage their uniqueness so that they won't experience the outcome called a disease. Your genes are not your destiny. That's exactly right. And so you touched on heart disease, you touched on cancer, diabetes, uh, something else that's rampant right now, autoimmune. Yeah, so what is autoimmune? Now, just think of the word for a second. Just take a deep breath with me and think of the word autoimmune. So it's as if you woke up one morning and your immune system said, you know, I don't like you. <laughs> and I'm going to become hostile to you. I'm going to attack you. And I'm not just going to attack you. I'm going to attack the part of you that's most sacred to you, which is your genes, your DNA. So I'm going to produce an antibody from my immune system, which is resonant in you, against your book of life called your genome. Now, does that sound at all peculiar to you, that we would somehow have the, the intelligence in our body that we would form a response against our native DNA to cause us to be allergic to ourselves? <laughs> it's ridiculous. The whole concept of autoimmunity is a ridiculous concept. So how does it exist? It exists because we have all agreed on a covenant saying that I can measure these antibodies in your blood against yourself. These are self-prone antibodies. So you become uh, collaterally damaged by your own immune system. But where did this really come from? And if you dig deep, and I, I could get too much down in the, the soil here, so I'll try to keep it at a meaningful level of understanding. Uh, if you actually examine what the body is responding to, it's not your native cells. It's cells that have undergone damage. Your DNA has been damaged, mutated, changed, modified, glycated. It, it's now no longer your host thing that was supposed to be seen as a friend. It's now seen as a foreigner in your own body because the cells have been transformed. And how did they get transformed? By things that we experience in our lifestyle, eating high sugar diets, having exposure to chemicals, having uh, uh, continued uh, chronic infections that, uh, that create an injury to our native cells that makes our body foreigners in place, for which our immune system is designed to try to recognize foreigners. Now, why do some people get it and others not? It's the same argument I talked about earlier, that those individuals who have the most sensitive immune systems, which may have in their time past, in their genetic lineage of uh, the inheritance, been an advantage. Maybe they were able to survive the 1917 flu because their immune system reacted very quickly and other people didn't, died. Now, in this age where we're exposed to 50,000 new chemicals and we've got all these kind of new uh, the funny things in our diet, and we've got all sorts of new patterns of living. So those immune systems that were once uh, able to maintain and, and be resilient now are exposed to more and more of these damaged materials. So how do you change it? You don't change the genes again. You change the environment in which the genes are expressed. So you start asking, is it gluten? Is it chemicals? Is it? You go down the list. 
Yeah, glycosate, soil, That's lectins, right. environment, all Precisely. that. Precisely. Yeah. And so then you start to say, well, why doesn't rheumatology uh, endorse and accept this? And why isn't this a dominant theme in medicine? Because rheumatology is still in the belief that this is just something that's locked into your genes, even though there's never been a definitive proof that any of the autoimmune disease have high penetrance to a monogenetic aberration. You can, you can screen a disease like um, rheumatoid arthritis, and you will not find common genetic profiling that leads to that same disease. What you find is a variegation of genetics. And so it's not a genetic disease. It's genes in a specific environment of that individual that create this outcome. So you change the environment. You change the lifestyle. So we, 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 you mentioned gluten. I mentioned lectins. So I'm going to segue to things, nutrition, diet, what we're putting in our mouth, where it goes, goes in the gut, guts the second brain, and the microbiome. So microbiomes, a lot of exciting science, the next frontier, if you will. In your opinion, where, where are we with what we know about the microbiome today versus what we're going to know tomorrow? Primitive stage, what does the, the future hold with regards to the microbiome? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I have a whole visceral response uh, that's deep in my uh, limbic system when I... <laughs> hear the word microbiome <laughs> let's hear it in my reptilian brain um, so in 1982 i started doing uh, a seminar series for physicians around the globe on on this construct that we're talking about and um, over the years now i've uh, i've had hundreds of thousands of, of health practitioners have come to seminars i've got over six million miles of air travel so i've I've had a, a lot of experience, right, in, in seeing how this model kind of uh, impacts different individuals uh, around the world. And um, when I go back to my 19, early 80s, I was talking about Ily Mechnikov. Now, you probably know Ily Mechnikov won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in, in, in 1901. And he won it for his discovery of uh, the innate immune system. He was, at that point, the director of the Pasteur Institute. Louis Pasteur had, had passed on, and he then became the director of the Pasteur Institute, which was all around microbiology. This is the age of infectious disease, right, in early 1900s. And, um, and Mechnikov uh, discovered one part of the immune system called the innate immune system for which he won the Nobel Prize. But he also published a book called The Prolongation of Life. I have a first edition copy that I'm very proud, signed by Metznikov. And in the prolongation of life, he talks about the treatment of aging by installation of yogurt enemas. <laughs> I want just that to sit for a second. Yogurt enemas. Lactobac um, bacillus vulgaricus. Fecal right? transplants. That's right. Yeah. And he talks about um, endotoxicity. He talks about the gut having this robust role in influencing overall systemic health. So I started talking about this, and we coined a term in the early 80s called leaky gut. Now, when I started talking about leaky gut with my colleagues, those in the traditional medical gastroenterological world, you can only imagine the criticism I got. Uh, I was a quack. Well, to this day, leaky gut is controversial well not so much no it's actually being used in the traditional gastrointestinal literature 
I'm very proud of this because we stayed the course. And in fact, I was involved in the uh, the formation of a, a laboratory called uh, Genova Laboratories. Back then, sure. it was called Great Smokies. I was one of the founders of, of that laboratory that was doing uh, stool testing. And everyone thought stool testing was an artifact. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and and now I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that over the years, um, this construct is now reforming the whole nature of gastroenterology and immunology. And now we recognize this gut-brain connection that you had described, and the, the, the gut being the, the second brain, in which was the title of a book uh, that we actually had the author of that book speak to one of our meetings in the, uh, in the early 90s. This is now like the dominant new paradigm, and it's, it's like now everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. What we really recognize, and I could, I could go off on a riff quite long on this, so I'll try to contain myself here. Um, we recognize that the microbiome, this very complex uh, milieu of bacteria, viruses, uh, uh, primitive organisms, uh, helminths, all, all these kinds of organisms that live in our gut, play a very important role in modulating where the resonance of 70% of the immune system of our body resides, which is the gut. Now, people don't really often understand this. Even gastroenterologists often don't really no, understand don't. this, that 70% of our immune system is clustered around what's called the gastrointestinal-associated lymphoid tissue, or GALT, GALT. Now, why? Was that cosmetically the only place that the universal creator could put the immune system? Just said, well, I don't know where to put it, so I'll just throw it up against the gut. No, it's because over the course of living, an average person will consume between 5 and 10 tons of foreign molecules called food. <laughs> and it has to translate those foreigners into something that's friendly that goes into our bloodstream that's called our nutrients. And it does so through the process of digestion and immune recognition. And therefore, the immune system is our friend to help make sure we get the right things coming into our body and, and prevent the wrong things from coming into our body. And therefore, there's a reason why 70% five percent of our antibodies are produced by the gut associated lymphoid tissue at our gut there's a reason why we're seeing increasing numbers of food allergies there's a reason why we're becoming reactive to foods that at one time were well tolerated as the total load on our immune system of this changing environment has created now a reaction where most of the immune system is resides so the dysbiosis, that's another term mm -hmm. that we coined, uh, altered gut microbiomal community coupled with the immune system of the gut creates then conditions of distant relationship. Now, let me uh, give you a, what I mean by that. So I recall uh, very clearly in 1988 an article that appeared in the Lancet Medical Magazine, which to me was like a stunner, in which they were talking about the correlation between uh, gluten enteropathy uh, this would be celiac disease, with dementia. And I got thinking, well, now that's interesting. Why do you have this, what's, what's called concordance or uh, comorbidity, between dementia and a person that has uh, gluten sensitivity, this, this celiac disease? And as it has evolved now over the years, we start to understand the reason for it. Because if your immune system perceives gluten as a foreigner, then at the gut level, what you're producing are inflammatory uh, mediators that are going to respond to this foreigner. Those are white cells that are present in your gut, your, your immune system or white blood cells. Those cells uh, travel, uh, and that message of, of inflammation travels through the blood system to the first organ that's going to receive that message from the gut. And what's that? The liver. And what's 10% of the liver made up of? 
it's made up of embedded white blood cells that are called Kupfer cells that have the same genetic lineage as did the gut cells that were involved with your immunity. So now the message is like a relay race. The baton is shifted over now mm -hmm. to the, the white cells in your liver, your Kupfer cells. Now what do they do? They pick up the message and they create their own signals that uh, communicates with the circulating uh, white blood cells in your bloodstream. They're called inflammatory meteors that travel then in your bloodstream up to what? to your brain, which has in it so-called microglial cells. Now, what are microglial cells? That's the brain's immune system. The brain's immune system was derived from the same stem cells as was your gut cover, uh, your liver cover cells and your gut immune cells. They're all cross-talking and communicating. So therefore, when your gut is inflamed, your brain is inflamed. Now we know a mechanism. That's systems biology. And that's not the way that we've been trained in medicine. Right. Because in the way we're trained in medicine is we study each organ system separately. We close a textbook and take a test. <laughs> that's not the way the body works. So I, I know it's hard to generalize, but are there certain foods that are generally good for the microbiome that everyone should be incorporating into their yeah. diet? Yeah, and uh, I think now, fortunately, people are starting to, to understand them. Those are basically the non-caloric polysaccharide foods that we call prebiotics, right? Think about this, the cellulose that's present in plant foods and the other constituents, uh, beta-glucans and, and the, uh, the other uh, forms of non-digestible carbohydrate that plants make, uh, bugs love to eat. So vegetables. That's right. What are your favorite vegetables? Well, I, for the, for I the think microbiome. any, you know, if you, you, you say artichoke is, you know, known to be very, very high in uh, soluble prebiotics. Um, you, you think of uh, things like asparagus. You think of the whole cruciferous vegetable families that not only have the glucosinolates, but they have interesting uh, soluble fiber. Uh, you think of oats, uh, which have you know a lot of beta-glucan, which is really an important modulator of uh, your microbiome. So uh, you don't get these prebiotics in, in animal products, right? The prebiotics are found in vegetable products. That's why I, I'm I'm really not a, a, a big proponent of the extreme edge of Paleolithic dieting, because I think the way that it got translated into fact uh, really, um, unfortunately for many people, minimizes uh, mm -hmm. these favorable aspects of plant foods, which I think we need. Plus, you don't get phytochemicals in animal products. Phytochemicals are these nutrients that are found only in plants. Plant phyto. Uh, so I, I think that there is. You know, as I've been around long enough in this field now, over 40 years, that uh, to see many fads and fashions mm -hmm. come and go. There are certain <laughs> things, however, that stay. So you mentioned fads and what's trending and two things that are hot right now immediately come to mind, keto and then intermittent fasting. What's your take on those two? So uh, let me start with intermittent, intermittent fasting. I, I think that this revolution that we're undergoing right now in understanding chronobiology is an extraordinary game changer. And it's so exciting to see what's going on. Chronobiology, meaning that timing has something to do with the sure. way that our body works. And I, I have a male culprit that I, I'd like to throw out to the world because I recall so clearly, it, it's imprinted on my memory, of a physician who sat in the front row of a seminar I gave in, in, uh, in San Francisco in 1984, in which he asked me, raised his hand very politely, said, uh, uh, so, Dr. Bland, you know, you're talking about all the things and uh, about nutrition and so forth. So what uh, what effect does timing have on all of this? You know, like when you eat and how, you know, the kind of timing of your schedule. And I now look at that person and would say, if I saw him today, I apologize for my answer. 
because what we don't know, often we should just say we don't know rather than try to fake it. So what I said to him is, I don't think timing plays a big role in how our body modulates its response to the diet. Shame on me. I should have just said, I don't know. <laughs> now what I do know, thanks to extraordinary work done by Sash Nana and Panda at uh, SOC and uh, uh, Walter Longo at USC and, and, and many others, uh, Matt Walker at, at Berkeley, is that uh, timing is extraordinarily important because our body is receptive to messages from our diet and lifestyle at certain portions of the day and not receptive uh, as receptive as others. So now that leads to the concept of uh, time-restricted feeding or fasting-mimicking diets or uh, certain kinds of uh, fasting regimes, uh, the 5-2 programs and all right. these things that are being studied. And I think what I can summarize to, uh, to bring light to this is that in medicine, th these concepts are still not w widely understood and not widely held. However, in December of 2019, when the arguably preeminent medical journal in this country, maybe in the world, called the New England Journal of Medicine, mm -hmm. had a feature article on fasting and its physiological benefit and the nature of chronobiology and timing as it relates to how the, the body receives information from the diet and the influence it has on all these different uh, aspects of health. Once it received that kind of attention in the New England Journal of Medicine, that's the first edge of what will be a major paradigm shift. So do you think it's still, is it primitive or is it going to evolve? You, know, you mentioned 5-2, I think of 16-8, <clears throat> 18-6. Uh, people will talk about autophagy, and there are various opinions on when that happens, how it happens. Do you, do you think sort of the the framework that we have today, whether it's five two Longo's program, sixteen eight overnight, like is that set, or do you think it's going to continue to evolve? Yeah, thank you. That's another really great question. I think it will continue to evolve, but I think we're starting to see you know the shape and form coming out of the fog a little bit. Um, and I go back, I have this, this, uh, this little aphorism I've been using, ancient wisdom through the lens of modern science. So like what that. can we learn from cultures? We learned that uh, where these blue zone cultures lived, um, they didn't have kind of like the set uh, three meals and snacks. They worked in, in fields and they did certain things and they ate on the run and it wasn't always on the same timing. And, and what we start recognizing is that they were by natural processes probably uh, doing intermittent fasting every day. They were probably doing something like a 1410 uh, <laughs> and they were only eating in a window uh, uh, of no more than 10 hours a day. And so I believe that historically, if you, if you use anthropological history to help guide us into today, um, that this construct of, of uh, having rest periods every day of 12 to 14 hours uh, of no eating, no snacking, maybe just fluid, water, uh, is, a, is a legacy of our genetic past that we should be uh, using as a wisdom. And that ancient wisdom can be translated now through the lens of this modern science to guide us into how we regulate our daily lives. And I think that the, the importance of that to me is that if you really think about, and we've been studying this in our own work uh, for the last uh, year or so, if you ask people, what are they willing to do? Everyone will do something for a short period of time. But the question is, will they stick with it? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, 
probably most of these things that we're, we're experimenting with, like the keto diet, it, it may be really very attractive for the short time to try it, but the uh, long-term uh, compliance <coughs> is extraordinarily low, unless you have a seizure disorder. Right. So what will people stick with? What they will stick with is, okay, I'm going to stop eating around 7, and, and I'm not going to start eating again until, say, 9 in the morning or 8 in the morning. They will stick with that. So my belief is, going from theory to practice, what will people really do that really will make a difference and will move the needle? That will move the needle, just what I said. So we, we touched a little bit on the foods that everyone should be enjoying, and, and I'd be remiss not to ask because it's a, a favorite of mine and our mutual friend, Dr. Bob Browntree, sulforaphane glucosinolate, which is found in... Yeah. <laughs> what is that found? What, what? Broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. <laughs> uh, yeah, the stinky foods that you cook and they make the kitchen smell like sulfur. But they're great. They are fantastic. And why do you like them? Well, you know, these uh, plant phytochemicals, yep. plant nutrients, um, when they get into the body, uh, we have an enzyme uh, that uh, called myrosinase that can break them down into secondary substances like indole-3-carbonyl and phenylisothionate. And these, these substances have very powerful uh, gene expression modulating effects on reducing inflammation, improving detoxification, uh, handling foreign chemicals, uh, uh, activating our immune system to be more on guard against foreigners. So what we really see is that as we have consumed these plant food families over the years, uh, these, these cultivars, these uh, glucosinolate-containing uh, brassica vegetables, have uh, at this particular time in history probably more important work to do than any other time because they help <laughs> get rid of stuff that we don't want building up in our body. And so they activate NERF2, uh, uh, one of the trans uh, transduction factors for gene expression that uh, controls the xenobac uh, xenobiotic detoxification genes that uh, get rid of harmful stuff and excrete them in the urine and the feces. So uh, it's a really important family uh, of uh, nutrients to be getting uh, for in an environment that's challenging to us because of these, um, these chemicals that we're exposed to. I love it. I think for for some people, this can get confusing, and I love to keep it simple with sometimes just eat vegetables, yeah, eat more plants. Michael Pollan got it right. So other things, I'll move on to sort of the the, the fun section, if you will. Okay, can, uh, I, can I can sure. I say one quick thing about this? Uh, I I think what this glucosinolate story and and glu and sulforaphane, which is one of those uh, downstream substances that is produced from eating these vegetables is part of an increasing understanding of the fact that we now are starting to recognize that there are arguably more than 5,000 different phytochemicals that are found in different foods, all of which, each of which, has unique biological activity. Now think of that. If you look at the whole of the pharmacopoeia of drugs, it is much less in number than the number of bioactive components that we eat in food that we're only now learning how they influence the body. And this goes once again back to ancient wisdom. So if we go back to the cultures that have respected longevity, a lot of centurions, didn't have modern medicine, and we ask, what did they eat in their original cultivars? They didn't have hybridized wheat and soy and, and so forth. They were eating their natural stuff. We find that they're eating very hearty plants 
Now, what is a hardy plant? It didn't require fertilizer. It didn't require pesticides, biocides. It didn't have a lot of uh, um, irrigation. It had to live in the hostile world. And what we find is those plants have genes that have to defend themselves because plants have immune systems. And the immune system of that plant has to be activated in those hostile environments, and they have to be selected for to live just where those people are living, in, a, in very tough environments. So people who eat the plants in tough environments that have the genes of toughness get those chemicals that elicit resistance to stress in the individual. Now, that's a very powerful mm -hmm. example of coevolution. So we've been studying those kinds of cultural connections. And one of the things that we have recently discovered, which I'm extraordinarily interested in, is a plant crop that was actually very common in early colonial America because it's tough. It doesn't require pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, and it, it has uh, unique uh, nutritional qual uh, quantities, and it's called tartary buckwheat. Now, today, we don't have tartary buckwheat grown in this country, even though it was a major staple at the colonial period. Mm. Now, why? Well, it has an off taste. It's so high in phytochemicals that it's, quote, bitter. And so it doesn't make white bread. It's not even wheat. It's, it's called buckwheat, but it's not wheat. It has no gluten. It has 100 times higher levels of stress-fighting phytochemicals than in any other plant food. And we don't even hear about it. Can it's, you get it anywhere? No. There are only 20 acres of tartary buckwheat now presently grown in the United States. Where, I'm curious, you know where, I'm curious. In upstate New York, and we are Let's working. go, guys. And I can tell you, our advocacy is over the next five years, we are going to help growers, small farms, grow up to 20,000 acres of tartary buckwheat because we think it's the next superfood. Wow. And we are advocating this kind of regenerative agriculture because this is a, a cover crop, tartary buckwheat. It's a regenerative crop. And our belief is it will produce high value to protect family farms to make income while producing extraordinary nutrition value. So these are the things, if you start digging deep, you can start learning about by this cultural history. I love it. Well, wh where you're going is where I was going w with regards to the what I call the, the fun bucket. And one of those things in the fun bucket is gluten. So what's your take? Are there... Is is it just about celiac or sensitivity or certain you know people? Some people will say, you know, sourdough is a is a better option, and then then there's rye, and then we all know to stay away from you know Wonder Bread, obviously, and then you've got all the gluten free options out there. I'm just curious, like, and then in that bucket, you know, let's we'll start there, gluten. Well, let's start with it, what everybody would agree with, so there'd be no controversy. We do know that there is a genetically predisposed group of individuals to gluten that's seen as a foreign molecule in their diet, and these are called gluten enteropathy patients, so celiac disease. So mm -hmm. there's no doubt about that, and we can diagnose that, so uh, no controversy. Now as we go down from that to uh, less extreme examples, where you have gluten sensitivity or you have gluten reactivity, now we get into more gray and, and controversial areas um, because these traditional immunologists or gastroenterologists may say that you only have gluten as a problem if you have celiac disease. Right. I don't believe that that's true. I think uh, Alessio Fasano uh, has been mm -hmm. brilliant in bringing these concepts uh, through good science into understanding. 
The question that Dr. Fasano has raised uh, from his extraordinary research and other colleagues, um, I've been working collaboratively with uh, people in Italy that are also um, actively involved in this research, is that if a person who has supposed gluten sensitivity travels to Italy and eats original cultivars of wheat, they often don't have those symptoms, right? right? So, it, But it still has gluten. So the question is, is it because we have hybridized our grains in such a way to produce uh, foreign proteins that were not in the original cultivars that now we get this complex array of, of new molecules that our immune system starts being sensitive to? That's not straight gluten enteropathy and celiac disease. It's a reaction to a complex array of new foreign materials in that, in that grain. And this is a much more complex uh, field to study. It's mm -hmm. much easier just to look at a disease than it is to look at a sensitivity. But I'm, I'm convinced that there are many, many people who have, uh, and we call it autoimmunity, but it's really not autoimmunity. It's an immune reaction to form what they perceive to be a foreigner in their diet that their gut mucosal immune system is responding to. Now, does that mean everyone should be on a gluten-free diet? No, I don't believe so. I think that there has been a little bit, as there is in our field, often the pendulum swings too far mm -hmm. to one way, and then it produces a bunch of phobia and psychodrama, and then it has to swing back into a kind of a normalized position. What it really should say to us is maybe we need to go to a diet that is less processed, mm -hmm. less uh, using uh, foods that are highly hybridized. Let's go to original cultivars. This is the whole green revolution, mind, body, green. That's a very important <laughs> color you put in there. And let's really look at what this means in terms of regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, and things that our body has been used to consuming for centuries that we lost because we wanted to go to this basically three products that everyone was going to eat, <laughs> right? And what about sugar? Poison. Yeah, so generally not a fan, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, it's I, and, and I or... overstated that, obviously, because, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the body can obviously tolerate glucose, which is yep. sugar. Um, and, you know, we know that we have a... Um, uh, 100 milligrams per deciliter approximately of sugar floating in our blood that, that our that our cells need. Now here is a, here is the point about sugar, and I think this is a what I what I've talked about to physicians now for over 30 years. I say so. Uh, let's say that glucose is not a poison in and of itself, but maybe it's the rate at which our body is exposed to glucose. So let's look at a candy bar, one candy bar. So in one candy bar, how much glucose is present in one portion size of a candy bar? Let's say that for the sake of argument, it was one ounce, which would be a fairly small candy bar, one ounce. So in one ounce, that's about 30 grams of glucose, right? 30 grams of glucose. Now in our blood, we have about 100 milligrams of glucose for every 100 milliliters of blood. And so how much, or so a tenth of a, of a liter. So how much blood do we have total in the body? About five liters. So you say, well, let's see. Uh, so that would mean the total sugar in our body is something like five grams. And your candy bar you're going to eat will have 30 grams. So you have six times more glucose in that candy bar that is going to be absorbed in your blood within 15 to 20 minutes after you're eating than you have in your total body floating around. <laughs> so what has to happen? As that sugar comes into your blood, you're going to have to orchestrate a fire drill to get that glucose put somewhere so it won't cause damage. And what is that regulated by? your pancreas secreting insulin, beta uh, glucagon. I mean, you have all these hormones that are going to just flush out to try to manage that extraordinary load, which over time, it just basically burns out the machinery. 
it doesn't have enough reserve if you do this every day continuously so, right. so your life. So it's not that sugar in and itself is a poison. I, I know I exaggerated that when I said it. It's the magnitude and the repetitive uh, um, amount of sugar sure. that we're exposed to. What about alcohol? Well, at some level, alcohol, I know this has been uh, controversial, but uh, it looks like it's probably beneficial. Uh, you know, maybe less than uh, uh, five grams a day. And by the way, there is no such thing as a teetotaler. <laughs> and the reason for that, people forget about this, that our, in our gut microbiome, we have some yeast. And yeast ferments sugar to what? Alcohol. So a person who never concern, consumes alcohol, if you measure very sensitively their blood alcohol, you will find alcohol in their blood. So are all forms created equal? Our friend Dr. Mark Hyman, will, he's a fan of tequila. Some people will say red wine. Uh, some people say sparkling, not that many pe people say beer, but in, in I your, think beer is fantastic. Uh, let's just stop right there. We'll end the interview right there, guys. Yeah. Cause beer, beer has, is fantastic. Beer has hops in it. <laughs> and what are hops? They're not only a bittering agent, hops are a bioactive member of the phytochemical families that stimulate insulin sensitivity. They cause lipid uh, metabolism. Uh, they are the isohumulants and prenylated uh, flavonoids that are in in hops are extraordinary medicinals. So okay, Just we're going like to stay wine. on beer. I think I'm going to I'm, I'm going back to. <laughs> I, I, I should have said this in college, guys. This is a health food. Uh, is it dark beer, light beer? I'm just curious if I'm I'm getting very excited as I go to my the, local the, Whole Foods. The bitter and beers the beer are section. better, right? The bitter IPA. IPA. Yeah, because you have more of these uh, isoflavones and uh, uh, the the humulones from from the uh, from the hops. It's like an IPA. What about amber? amber uh, that okay. would be okay. good. Anything that has okay. a higher BU in it, right? Okay, so you're darker than IPA, amber. Yeah. Okay, okay. You're making me. This is fantastic. This is. Fun. And, and by the way, again, <laughs> I want to emphasize, just as with wine or with tequila. It has to do with magnitude, doesn't it? Uh, of course. Oh, yeah. So again, I go back to Michael Pollan. Yeah. A little of a lot of things and not too much. No, I love that. I love that. So I'm curious, what's, look, you, you travel how many million miles? Three million Over miles? Six million Over six million miles. Over six million miles. Um, you're, you're in your early 70s. 74. 74. You are so articulate, so sharp. What's... What does your diet look like? What is, what's a day in the life of, of Jeff Bland? You're do, whatever you're doing, you're doing it right. I hope so. You know, you never know, right? <laughs> As I say, any human being is only one number away from a life change, right? So, um, no, my, my philosophy, which I'm very fortunate, my mother was, uh, was really uh, a health devotee. Um, she was a Hollywood, California uh, woman who really, her mother really believed in... Uh, in health foods way back when in the 20s. And so wow. uh, we were raised, my sister and I, uh, both, um, we, ne we, we never had white bread, we never had soft drinks, we never had desserts. Uh, so that was kind of our culture that we grew up in. And so I think that was a good head start for me and that's kind of the way that we raised our children with that same kind of philosophy. Uh, now we stray, right? It's not like life is not perfection. But the, the general theme I've had, really, uh, when, I, when I met Michael Pollan for the first time uh, with Omnivore's Dilemma and I had a chance to talk with him and then his later publications, I said, you know, he's really speaking exactly <laughs> to what I was, was raised to believe. And so it's, uh, 
it's the way that I've tried to kind of uh, select. I eat, you know, mostly plants, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big, uh, even though I was on the Coleman Natural Beef Board for many years, I was the scientist on their board, so I kind of believe in natural meats. I'm really not a big carnivore. I'm, I'm more of a kind of a pescatarian sure. kind of guy. I live in the Northwest, a lot of fish. So uh, I'm, I'm a big vegetables, and I still believe in, in, uh, in whole grains, particularly uh, natural cultivars, and uh, trying to, to stay on the Mediterranean lifestyle. And so with regards to flying, that's one thing. I'm 45, and I, I feel great, but the one thing that kind of k- kicks my butt here and there is, is flying. What are, what are your flying hacks, if you will, to make sure that flying doesn't just... Destroy, it can destroy people. Yeah, it, it can. And, I, you know, as I've looked over the years, there have been many people that have been in this uh, field that have been celebrities or uh, personalities who have become very popular and have traveled around and done many lectures all around the world. And uh, many of them didn't make it because they burned out, basically. Yeah. And they didn't take care of themselves. And it's just like being an athlete. You're an athlete. And you know that if you don't have good hygiene, your athletic performance is really... Uh, impacted. So, you know, those athletes that have sustained themselves in whatever sport beyond the normal tenure of most athletes, if you really look at their lifestyles, they've been very assiduous about how they treat themselves. And their. You know, it's like people who are singers that have maintained their voice for decades. They have to really work on, on hygiene, vo- vocal hygiene. So I've tried to be very cautious to do the things that are, you know, no magic, uh, very sensible, no alcohol on planes, a lot of hydration. Uh, try to get exercise when I get to the new location. Set uh-huh. my time to the new time immediately. Yep. Don't try to hold on to the back time. And then try to get to sleep on those ta- those times that are to the new time and not the old time. Uh, and it, it, over time, you can discipline yourself. Now I can sleep on planes very well. Uh, you know, it, it took some training, but but now I can I can wake up after an international flight and I can be pretty rested. So I think there are certain skills that you develop, but you have to practice them all the time. So you mentioned uh, being an athlete. I'd be remiss not to ask you a little known fact about you. You you played for arguably the the greatest basketball coach of all time, John Wooden at UCLA. Won a a championship. Well, you you downplay it. You're like, oh, I didn't play that much. Come on. What was that like? I was on the freshman team uh, and, uh, and, you know, I was a uh, an aspirant, uh, but I had the privilege of uh, the Wooden experience, which was, yes. and, and actually he uh, was very instrumental uh, in 1963 in my development because he, actually it was 1964, he uh, said a very uh, nice thing to me and said it very kindly. He said, so um, so Jeff, it was after practice, he said, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to be uh, earning your living playing basketball, but I understand that you're you're pretty good in science. And it's hard to do <laughs> basketball and science in a school where basketball is really a very important. Everything. Thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I can, I, we can transfer your scholarship over to a, another university, which turned out to be University of California at Irvine that was just starting uh, brand new that year. And you could probably play basketball there and still do your science. So that was a very important <laughs> uh, recommendation. So I, I spent my last years at, at Irvine. So my last question, you know, you've been at this for 40 plus years, 50 years. You've seen so much change. I am so excited about where the, where the world is going. In your opinion, 
where is the world going? What, yeah. what are we going to be talking about a year from now? What's exciting to you? So uh, my globalization concept of what's going on right now at, at every level, social, political, economic, uh, cultural, is around one dramatic change in, uh, in world culture. Uh, and that is the concept of personalization. Uh, immigration, all these things that we're going through at every level are really tie back to individuals and the expression of their uniqueness in a world that was homogenized and cultural separated. And, uh, you know, uh, it was almost like uh, if you were not a member of the massified society, you wouldn't be really fully realized. And so we came out of World War II with massification and the American dream and all these returning veterans. I was in the first wave, obviously, of baby boomers uh, born uh, in in uh, post-World War II. And the construct was you want to be part of the great mass of the cornucopian society. And that model is now undergoing extraordinary transformation into the prime and the importance of the individual. Now, I'm not talking about snowflakes. <laughs> I'm talking about the fact that within each one of us possesses extraordinary talents and capabilities that if we can optimize our environment, we're going to do things far beyond what we ever thought we were possible of. And if we could mobilize this human spirit that exists as a potential energy in the, in the global culture and give the right tools for these individuals to fully express all of what in the human genome is potential, we would solve every problem, we would have a life happy, and we would see a future of preservation of our environment. I'm banking on my grandchildren of being mm -hmm. that generation because they have the tools that we didn't have. They have the internet. They have access to information that we did not have. One of the very concerning things I, I have right now is that there is a backlash to the democratization of ideas uh, to those who want to control at every uh, form of our society. They want to hold on to their sphere of influence, uh, jealously protecting uh, them as being the magistrates for wisdom. Uh, we can't allow that to happen. We have to break down those walls and allow the democratization of ideas to empower people to be all that they can be. And I think in nutrition, that's one aspect of personalization, uh, but it goes way beyond that. Personalization of medicine, personalization of, of music, culture, arts, literature, all of these things are going to bring the best of individuals who have unique talents that have been suppressed by those who have uh, sense that they want to own other individuals' ideas and capabilities. We have to throw that shackles off, and this is the time. Amen to that. Dr. Jeff Bland, the living legend. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's really been fun.